If you, like many other people, live your life vicariously on Instagram, live your life vicariously through people with far more adventuresome lives than your own, then look no further than the Instagram account One Bike, One World. This is the Insta account of Dean Nicholson, who, when he turned 30 a few years ago, set out from his home in Scotland to cycle around the world. It, this is an interesting feat in and, of, in and of itself. But three months in, something happened that skyrocketed Dean and his Instagram account to instant fame. On an isolated road between Montenegro and Bosnia, he stumbled upon an abandoned kitten. And so taken was he with her after feeding her some tinned food and he scooped her into his bike, took her to the vet and nursed her back to health. And ever since then, Dean has traveled with his feline companion, Nala, who perches on his handlebars or his shoulders or curls up in the front basket, a little umbrella shielding her, her from the rain or the sun, and who prowls around hunting for mice and birds and bugs when they set up camp and settling in to sleep for the night in the crook of his arm. It's a fabulous story. And probably all, made all the more fabulous because none of us can ever imagine doing something like this. It sounds like a great adventure. Spending years cycling from one small town to another, meeting new people, camping alongside abandoned castles and eating delicious food and exploring the world, working odd jobs to fund the journey. Certainly fine for one person, but most of us, most of us can't drop our things and hop on a bike and head for Spain. There are things that have to be done, expectations that have to be met, milestones to achieve. We go to school, we get jobs, we pay off debt, we buy houses, we have kids, we put money in our RSPs, we try to eat healthy and exercise a bit, and maybe if we really want an adventure, we pack up the kids and go to Disney World or go camping at Algonquin Park. There's a way of doing things, and we don't have the luxury of doing things any different. So we just live vicariously through the likes of Dean Nicholson and his Instagram account. In the Jewish tradition in which Paul grew up, there was a way of doing things. There were expectations, milestones, markers, that had to be met as one grew up in the faith. On the eighth day, all Jewish boys were circumcised. Families that could afford to do so would send their boys to school to study the Torah under a rabbi. Torah, or the law, was to be followed in all things. The way food was prepared and eaten, the way one dressed, the way one prayed, the way one socialized, the way one worshipped. There were codes by which every Jewish person lived, religious and cultural expectations, and the first Christians, still very ensconced in their Jewish 
culture and traditions took many of those expectations into their new faith system. Jesus, after all, was the fulfillment of the promise at the center of Judaism. Following Jesus didn't mean people stopped being Jewish. But the problem creeping into those first churches wasn't that people simply loved their tradition and wanted to hold on to it, but that they used their tradition, their expectations, their religious milestones and achievements to assert superiority and bolster their position in the community. They were bringing the requirements of the Torah, the law, into their new faith and asserting that those converting to Christianity from outside the Jewish community, Gentiles, couldn't be real Christians until they met all the same requirements, most significantly until they met the requirement of circumcision. This problem, problem wasn't yet as profound, that, that prevalent in the Philippian church, but Paul had dealt with it in spades with the, the Galatian church a few years earlier. In that church, some Jewish Christians were insisting that Gentiles had to be circumcised and follow the commands of Torah in order to be part of the church. They referred to the Gentiles as dogs, which in that day was not a compliment. People didn't have dogs as pets as they do here now. Dogs were strays. Dogs got into your rubbish and rubbish bins and messed up your gardens and wreaked havoc in your nice orderly ways of doing things. Calling uncircumcised Gentiles dogs was a way of saying they better tidy themselves up before they could join the church. They'd better keep up with the right way of doing things. Circumcision was what, or there, no, there, there must be a whiff of this in the air in, in Philippi that Paul doesn't want to be blown into a full storm because he warns against it quite strongly and with biting irony. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, who, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, it's the insisters of circumcision who are the dogs, and it's the ones who claim that the only way into the kingdom is through good words and who are evildoers. And it's the ones obsessed with the purity of circumcision who are the mutilators of the flesh. Circumcision was what set Israel apart. is how they committed themselves to the Lord with their very bodies. But, and Paul can't stress this enough, there is now no set-apartness for Israel. There's now no special status for them. The way of doing things that had meant faithfulness for so many years was no longer the way of doing things because the old covenant had been replaced, replaced by the blood of Jesus by which all people, Jew, Gentile, Roman, Egyptian, Asian, or Celt, were extended a gracious invitation into new life. And Paul isn't saying this as an outsider as someone who particularly benefits from this new way of doing things, this new order. Paul was getting along just fine in the old way of doing things. Paul was basically the perfect Jew. 
in a society where familial heritage gave status, he can trace his lineage to Benjamin, the most favorite son of, jo- of Jacob, his youngest and most favorite. He is circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee. He was a scholar. And not just that, he trained under Gamaliel, the leading authority of the Sanhedrin. He was faultless in his obedience to the Torah. And all of that, says Paul, he counts as loss. He doesn't doesn't even say that those things don't matter anymore. He declares that everything that once gave him status is now like garbage to him, something to be thrown away and forgotten because these status markers and achievements glitter in their temptation to provide status once more. And that temptation and pride pulls Paul away from the only thing that really matters and actually matters, Jesus. Now, I don't imagine, or I imagine most of us don't feel a particular kinship with the early church on the matter of circumcision. But we know that we've got our own forms of Jesus and theology. Our own particular way of doing things by which we operate a tidy church and keep things just how we like them and and reassure ourselves of our status in the kingdom. These are things that aren't bad, but which can elevate until they're so high up, they block our view of Jesus, the only thing that matters. So that when we look towards what, that which matters most, it's Jesus and good works. It's Jesus and the right education. It's Jesus and infant baptism. Jesus and a certain ethnicity and, and cultural heritage. It's Jesus and co- Christian radio. Jesus and our political party. We all have things in our lives by which we hedge our bets, saying, yes, I believe in Jesus, but in case his promise of salvation by grace alone through faith turns out to be a crock, I've got X, Y, and Z to fall back on. You should probably adopt X, Y, and Z to make sure you're all set too. But by hedging our bets, we act no different from the rest of the world who says that status, belonging, and love have to be achieved by acting, by doing, by being your best, of having the right pedigree, of looking the right, the part. N.T. Wright, a theologian, says that when Paul talks about the flesh in this chapter, he's talking about the pride of physical descent, like Paul's being from the tribe of Benjamin. But he writes, if you emphasize the flesh and your identity according to the flesh, as Paul himself had done in, this pre, in his pre-Christian days, then instead of stressing something that actually made you different from the pagan world around you, you were instead stressing that which you had in common with them. You were setting your, up your Judaism as just another ethnic, geographical, religious, and cultural grouping along with all the others in the world. Through circumcision, God had set Israel apart from the world. Ironically, by clinging to the importance of circumcision, Israel was saying that they were just like the rest of the world, 
that belonging to a group of people the right way was what was important. What made the church different, what made Christianity different from any other religion or cultural group was that there was nothing a person had to say or do or look like or act like. No traditional way of doing things that acted like a gateway into the religion. All the person had to do, what do you think? All the person had to do was believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus and claim Christ as their own. And so says Paul, the only thing that is important for him is to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is all that matters. And then Paul says something fascinating. Verse 12 Not that I've already attained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. Well, that sounds a whole lot like having to work really hard to earn something, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem to, to negate everything Paul has just said? That we are, in fact, meant to be straining, meant to be striving, keeping up, trying to do more and more and reach a goal? It could. Except for the key, one key phrase in verse 12. I press on, says Paul, to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Paul is journeying forward, pressing on toward something that is only his and can only ever be his because Christ has made it so. Because Christ has taken hold of him and brought him into the journey itself. N.T. Wright puts it this way, all Paul's efforts after holiness are not a matter of his unaided effort to do something that will make God pleased with him. They all take place within the context of God's grace. King Jesus has grasped hold of him and all that he does now is a matter of responding in love to that firm hand on the shoulder. We are, at the end of the day, not unlike that stray kitten, Nala. Helpless, weak, and weary on our own, but then rescued, nourished, and brought into the grandest and wildest adventure. And what's this adventure? To live the resurrection life, to know more and more the call of God upon our lives, to anticipate the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom that is here now, to live in the present in the, present, in the light of that future. We're not called to do all the right things to gain entry into the kingdom. All that is necessary is faith in Christ. But Paul doesn't want us to think that this is a one and done kind of thing. Christian maturity means living 
in faithful gratitude, pushing forward, desiring to know more and more, dedicating our lives to Christ more and more, going further up and further in, as Lewis puts it, into the kingdom of God. So it's not about Jesus and. It's not about our religious pedigree, our background, our doing things the right way. We don't have to hedge our bets. We get to explore, to discover, and seek the abundant life God through Christ offers each of us. This is how the the singer-songwriter Michael Card puts it. To all who've been born in the Spirit, who share incarnation with him, who belong to eternity stranded in time and weary of struggling with sin, there is a joy in the journey. There's a light we can love on the way. There is a wonder and wildness to life and freedom for those who obey. Cherish the things that are important to you. Your religious heritage, the music you listen to, the school you attend, your devotional practices, these things are good. But cherish them only inasmuch as they bring you into deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, only as much as they help you know Jesus in his death and resurrection, only as much as they are signposts along the journey, pointing us along the way, not as goals in and of themselves. And if you feel like an outsider, if you feel like you don't belong one reason or another, take a, take a deep breath and let it out. You belong to Jesus. There's nothing more you have to do. There's no test you have to pass. There's no entrance exam. The kingdom of God is here and you are part of it. So hop on your bicycle and go exploring. Uncover the beautiful delights Christ has in store for you. Stand in awe before the riches of his mercy, the majestic peaks of his love, the vast expanses of his justice, and the glowing sunrises of his peace. There is abundant life here for you. The adventure awaits. Please pray with me. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life, for his teaching, for his death, his resurrection, and his ascension into glory. Lord, thank you for for his salvation. He is the basis upon which we are saved, not Jesus and, but just Jesus. And Lord, forgive us all those ways in which we add things as entrance pathways into your kingdom. Help us to see that clear, simple, crisp gospel of salvation And help us live lives of gratitude, learning more and more, pressing on as you have placed your hand upon us and drawn us into. Help us to be followers of Jesus and lovers of your your life. And on this great, grand adventure, in Jesus we pray. Amen.